Hi everyone and welcome along to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. What a week it has been. Not only did we surpass 1,000 downloads, but we were also accepted onto Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts, which now means we are available across all major streaming platforms, hopefully making the podcast a little bit more accessible. And as if that wasn't enough, on Wednesday past, we had our very first live Facebook podcast episode, which was an absolutely awesome experience. And I'm so humbled by the love and support and interaction that happened on the evening. And it's something that hopefully we'll be able to do more often, either in a weekly basis or a bi-weekly basis, because the engagement was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. And on that note, actually, in the next coming weeks, we are going to release our official YouTube channel, which will house some of the video content that comes along with the podcast. So basically, if we record a podcast, I would normally strip the audio off and then publish it on publish it on the major streaming platform. So I'm going to keep some of that video content and publish it on there. So you've got the, uh, the option, I suppose, if you want to watch the podcast, you can do that. Or if you want to listen to the podcast, that's also an option for you. So after all of that, it's now time to get on with this week's episode. And here's a quick insight into what you can expect. Feel it. Allow yourself to feel it because a lot of people push feelings away by this is where addiction comes in. Addiction comes from from not looking to feel something. It's it's moving away from pain towards pleasure. Allow yourself to feel it. What do I mean by that? I mean, take a pen and a piece of paper and write it down. I'm really angry right now because such and such said this to me and such and just get it down. First of all, get it out of your head. And you'll be able to actually see what it is that the thing is bothering you is, right? So then you can take the steps that you need in order to change that. That could be, look, I actually need to have a conversation with this person or I need to not have a conversation with this person. You'll, you'll see what it is. But the second thing that I'd advise anyone who's struggling with their emotions to do is write a list of the emotions that you would like to feel more of on a daily basis. Then write a recipe with regards how to feel those things. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. And this week I am joined by Garth Fox. Now, Garth Fox works in hypnotherapy and has a background in sport, in football and in Gaelic because he does some writing for in a Gaelic column at the moment. So I'm going to hand over to Garth just for him to introduce himself and then we'll take it from there. So Garth, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, just to explain a little bit about myself, like you said, I work as a hypnotherapist, but um, I suppose... The title I would give myself would be a performance coach. Um, I'm a general hypnotherapist, so I work on anything, let's say, from depression, anxiety, phobias, addictions, um, issues with success, money, imposter syndrome. But I have recently gone more specific towards sport because that is my own personal background. Um, I played a lot of soccer growing up, so I played for Dungan and Swifts. Um, I stopped playing when I was 18. So my last season with Dungan Swifts was, oh yeah, we had a, a, a very good last, my last season anyway, when I was 18, we, we did the whole reserve league unbeaten. Um, we won everything, Bob Radcliffe, Ivan Marshall, we won the league. We, and on that team, we had Niall McGinn and Mark McAllister. So that was, that was possibly the best team that I've ever played on. Uh, but after that season, I went to university in Manchester and I stopped playing football. I studied English literature. I am an internationally published author in um, fiction. 
And then from that, I trained as a hypnotherapist, which I've now taken back into the world of sport again as a performance coach. So that's 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 it in a uh, that's a shortened version of, of of the journey. It's quite a quite a mixture, isn't it? It's quite a, everything kind of thrown in together there. But uh, you mentioned imposter syndrome, and I just want to pick up on that for a few minutes if we can, because it's something that I discussed with a friend of mine recently, in terms of from a coaching perspective, where you know I was I was basically saying to him, you know, I've had sessions where I've walked away from the session not recognizing myself, going, I'm why am I even here? This doesn't make sense. I, I don't think that I know what I'm doing. And it's a really, really weird feeling. I, I have to admit that I suffer from it too. Um, I've suffered from it for a long time because, and I, I, I tell you why I suffer from it. And I've, I've been working on it and I've been able to improve in it. I, I'm not sitting in front of you today because I, I was like, I'm able to sit in front of you today because I've been working on imposter syndrome, but before previously I would be nowhere near here because I'd be nowhere near doing what it is that I do. But um, how mine used to manifest is anything new that, that I wanted to do, whether it be in sport or in, in writing, I would immediately have, I'd, I'd make the first step in through the door and then immediately recoil and, and get back out again as quick as I could because I'd step in, I'd maybe socialize or be in the same environment with people who've been there before or for a long time and immediately go, no, this, this isn't me. I got to get out. I'm a fraud. I'm someone's going to pick up on it. They're going to catch me out. I don't deserve to be here. So that's how mine manifested. But when you work on imposter syndrome, what's really interesting is that what I like to do in my, in, in my hypnotherapy sessions. So that's, that's, that used to be my full gig, let's say, but now it's my side gig because I, I work on, on, on a lot more than that. But you'd go back to a scene that's, the root, the, the, the root cause of, of what it is that you're suffering from. And the majority of the time, it can be whittled down to something very simple as um, someone who's a teacher, so whether that be a parent, a carer, or a teacher, or a coach, criticizing and saying, hey, you're not good enough. And if that happens to you enough times, then that gets implanted into the subconscious mind. So anywhere you go, Anything you do, this thing, this autopilot in your background is just going, hey, don't do that. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. And that's fundamentally what imposter syndrome is. So you could have found yourself in a situation and you come out of it and you go, hey, where, where did this come from? How, how did I manage to do that? Because I'm actually not that person. I'm not good enough to do that. And then you have a fear, you have an anxiety of, ooh, I'm going to get caught out here. I'm, I'm, it's, it's such a weird thing that I didn't know existed until the last couple of years when I started to, to train as a therapist, but I'd been suffering from, from a very long time. And a lot of people are, a lot of women are especially. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting one because no matter how many times it happens, you never really understand, or at least I never do anyway, understand why it happens, you know, because I overthink about these things to a ridiculous level. You know, is it because of my setup? Was it because of the day I had at work? Was it because of the music I was driving, or sorry, listening to in the car and I was driving in? Did it put me in a bad mood? And then did that bad mood mean that I can't perform the level I should be? You know what I mean? So it kind of like manifests itself in so many different ways for me. And trying to understand really why that was is quite a difficult process to, to get through. There, you're back. Can you hear me? I'm back. Yes. <laughs> you were just saying there, because um, it, it cut off. You were just saying there that you, you weren't sure where it was coming from. Could it be from the day you've had at work or, or something like that? Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, 
I think about it so many so, so, to such a deep level that I almost try to pick out triggers in my day to make me think, well, the reason why I wasn't good enough was because this affected me because maybe I had an argument with my manager or because the music I was listening to in the car has affected me. You know what I mean? It's like, what, what is actually going on here? And it's quite a difficult process to really get through. Yeah. It's, you can look in your, in your environment to try and find out what it was that stimulated that feeling but it fundamentally comes down to a, a negative belief that you have in general that yeah. you're, you're going to find anytime you put yourself somewhere new and it looks where you feel vulnerable immediately this thing comes in the background of look you're not good enough that's if i was to say what is the biggest negative belief that the world suffers from it's a feeling of being not good enough now this has completely been heightened by the fact that we can so quickly and so easily compare ourselves with other people now we have social media so social media i can compare myself with 10 people who do the same job with me within a minute and suddenly i go oh i'm not as good as those people are so i can have instant gratification of not being good enough whereas previously before social media it wasn't as 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 prevalent as it is today. You know, it might have taken a bit of time before you rub shoulders with someone who was doing the same thing as you. And then you went, oh, maybe I'm not doing it right, but I can have it done immediately. And comparison and that feeling of not being good enough is is all around us. Yeah, that, that's the one thing that social media does perpetrate is I actually, I came across something on Twitter there recently where a coach had put up a tweet that basically said, why is it that coaches seem compelled to put up their level of coaching award on their Twitter page? You know, I've got it up in mine. It tells you what my title is and what license I have and whatever else. And I never really thought about it, why I put it up. It was just seemed to be like a dumb thing. You know, any coach who's got an A license, it says on their Twitter page, they've got an A license. So, I've, well, I've got my A license, so why not put it up there? And I kind of, I suppose I kind of thought about that as, maybe self-promotion in many ways. You know, someone sees that, they might be more interested in what I have to say and then what my tweets are about. Then I might get some traction, be able to network and all that kind of stuff. But whenever I seen that tweet, I kind of sort of stepped back and went, you know, a question, why? Why do I have that there? Is it because, as you said earlier on, you start to compare yourself to other people and because somebody else has done that, is that the reason why I've done that? And then because I've got it publicized on my Twitter page and my LinkedIn when I go to coach, do I feel there's a pressure there in my subconscious because I've got this out there publicly that I am this level of a coach? You know what I mean? So it's kind of like a, yeah. a back and forth all the time. Like, if I was honest about that, and I also have some of my certifications on my Instagram as well, you know, in my, in my bio it says where my certification is recognized. Um, if I was looking for the services of a coach, I would want to see their qualification. So I think it's a necessary thing that you have to do because look, I've this, this thing happened to me a couple of months ago and actually something else happened to me very recently as well in an email exchange where I contacted certain people. Maybe I listened to a podcast and I thought something was very interesting. So I wanted to exchange with the, the person of the podcast because I think that's what podcasts and everything is about. It's about exchange. You put yourself in a place where you're giving information, well, I should be able to send you an email and say, hey, you were talking about that thing. Can you explain that a bit more? Or I think maybe if you looked at it like this, that might help. It's just exchange, but it's not a criticism. And immediately I was sent this email going to the person that looked at, at my thing, you know, Garth Fox, RTT hypnotherapist, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, what school did you go to? 
what this, what that. And I immediately felt attacked because this person really wanted to know my credentials. And that, it really upset me because I thought, is this what it's going to be like all the time? And it took me a while to sit down and go, hey, it's not actually me who's under threat here. They feel under threat because a normal person who's quite comfortable with who they are accepts the exchange and go, yeah, I blah, 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 blah. What do you think, you know? And then this happened to me. I, I contacted a sports psychologist, um, a sports psychologist who works in the GAM. And I had, I, I'd heard him on a podcast and he talked about something that I'm really interested in. And it's about the emotional well-being of a player instead of their sports performances. It's concentrate on the emotional well-being, get that player where they need to be in everyday life. That player performs on the field. And a lot of people focus on sports performance, but I was so interested in what he had to say that I sent him an email and said, look, I work on this as a therapist and I can see the benefit of what it is that you're saying. So I'd love to maybe have a chat with you, exchange some ideas, let you know what I'm doing and the results that I've had. And immediately the reply was, what are your qualifications? Uh, give me some uh, peer-based reviews that hypnotherapy works. What school did you go to? What degree do you have in sports psychology? Wow. And I, I was ready to reply back with everything because I wanted this person to, wanted to have an exchange with this person. And then I took a step back. What is your agenda here? I haven't come to say that anything that you do is wrong. You're under no threat. Why are you threatened by just a, a fan of your work? So everyone, I think, suffers from imposter syndrome at one stage or another. And a lot of that manifests as aggression. That can manifest as aggression as well, you know? Yeah. When you, when you mention emotional control and looking at sort of that side of a player or that side of a person over the performance, I remember reading a book a number of years back now by Professor Stephen Peters, The Chimp Paradox. And you know, to be honest with you, I think I got halfway through it and I closed it because I'd lost interest by that, st- <laughs> by that stage. I'm not ashamed to say it, but I got what I needed from the book, I think. I think I got a very basic understanding of, of what he was trying to get across and the pictures he was trying to paint. But from your perspective and the line of work that you do, how important do you feel that emotional intelligence or that emotional control is for um, a person? I think it's vital. Absolutely vital. If we're going to concentrate, if we're going to focus solely on, let's say, sports performance, getting the best out of the individual while they're doing their chosen sport, their chosen activity. The main thing, no, let's, let's not say the main thing, because the main thing is that... Is, Training is important. Physical condition is important. Nutrition is important. But if they aren't where they need to be with regards how they deal with their, let's say, love relationship or how they deal with their family relationships or how they deal with their own emotions or their own character or their own values, they're going to suffer on the playing field. Like anyone who is in the midst of a breakup in a relationship understands the feeling that has within the body. You know, I, I can remember when, when, when I broke up with um, a partner, I took a pen, a piece of paper, and I wrote everything I was physically feeling, what it was doing to me. I couldn't eat. I couldn't think straight because all my thoughts kept going back to this partner. Now, imagine that happens in your life, and then you step out onto the, onto the playing field. You are not going to perform. You have to be taught how to deal with personal issues in order to become a better performer in your sport. I think it's vital. Like anyone who isn't professional, let's say 
our Gaelic players or um, a lot of our Irish league players, they have a job. They have to be taught how to, um, what's the best way to say it? How to understand how to be in their workplace in order to perform better on the pitch. Because they need to understand how to deal with a manager who's angry at them. They need to be able to be subjective and take a step back and go, hey, that's not about me, that's about them. Because if they don't have that and they have a complete stress reaction, which is anger or frustration, that gets carried out onto the pitch. Because if you think about, right, if, you're, if you have a game, but just before you go to the match, your boss says something to you or you receive an email or a message that gets you frustrated, right? That creates stress chemicals in your body, which don't flush easily. So then you go to the game or you go to training and you're still in fight or flight, which means that you're going to have a fight or flight reaction in the pit, on the pitch, which could end up in a red card. You know, you could strike out at someone or you could say something to a teammate or you could actually do the opposite and go into a shell. Your personal life has like very strong implications on your performing life. I remember being sort of exposed to this idea of a hedgehog and a fox when looking at emotional responses and looking at tools in which you can use to basically fight off or at least suppress some of those badder or the, or the more... I suppose divisive or or more damaging thoughts. So the idea was that um, it was it was a children's book. I'm trying to think who it was. I read. I can't remember the name of the author, but basically it was saying that when to, it was a parenting book. That's what it was. It was a parenting book, and it was talking about when children show and express emotions. What are the right and wrong ways of approaching it, or are there right and wrong ways of approaching it? And it gave the idea of a hedgehog and a fox. So it basically suggested that. If your child was a hedgehog in the moment in which they needed to, ping, to bring forward tools to defend themselves, a hedgehog can do one thing pretty much, and that is roll up in a ball. And if it doesn't work, it's done for, right? It's, there's no coming back from it. Whereas a fox, it can run, it can bite, it can jump, it can whip its tail, it can show its teeth, it can growl. It has so many more ways of dealing with those moments of threat than a hedgehog does. And I thought it was a really cool way of kind of depicting yeah, that. I like that. Um, and, and again, I'm not too sure with that where I seen that from or what book that was, I read it in, but it was definitely a parenting book of some description. I was at a, I'll tell you actually where it was. It was a sport NI conference up in Jordanstown. And one of the guys on stage mentioned it and went, went away and researched it and, and read about it. I actually used it with an under 12 side that I coached in Hillsborough. And we, we just basically showed them two pictures of a hedgehog and a fox and asked them which had the, had the more tools to defend itself. And quite interestingly, obviously they went for the fox because of, of the many ways it, that it, that it could defend itself. But when I asked them what kind of things they could do to maybe offset anger, if they seen themselves or, or what, what anger felt like, tell me what anger feels like. They were very, they weren't able to tell me how they felt. It was just, I, I don't know, I just get angry. They weren't able to articulate it. Yeah. Surely that must be half the battle of being able to recognize. It is. It's, it's half the battle of being, uh, being able to deal with it is, to being, is being able to observe it and describe it. Like once you observe something and then describe it, then you understand, you, you break it into its sort of minutest parts and then you look at it and you think, well, what is valuable and what's not valuable? Okay, I can easily let that go. And that's, that's the, the beginnings of, of letting it go. Like, I think with regards performance, it's very naive of anyone who's functioning at in any level of sport, but especially those near the top levels of sport and who want to, to progress further to not to disregard all the other elements or aspects or areas of their life. 
to solely focus on going to the gym and getting stronger and faster and, and sticking to a, a rigid protein high uh, carbohydrate low diet, diets, things like that. And you think that's going to get the best out of you on the pitch. Well, that's going to put you in a very good physical place to perform. But if you're not doing it mentally, then no, it's, it's actually, it's not going to work at all because your physicality won't do anything for you if your body gets into fight or flight and you actually, this is the third one, you have fight or flight. And when those two don't work, you go into the final one, which is the one that happens uh, on, on the sports field all the time is freeze. You see so many players and you'll even see it through the, the underages. So many good young players play within themselves and just get nervous and not do anything. That's freeze because if the zebra can't run away, and if the zebra can't kick out and lash out, the final thing that it can do is to play dead so that whoever's attacking it gets fed up and a bit bored because a lot of lions aren't scavengers. They won't really eat something that's already dead. So that's why they go into this freeze dead mode and then they hope that they, 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 their attacker gets bored and, and walks away. So that's what happens on the field. Like a good a good um, example is, and this happened to me one time as well, but lots of times actually, because I was riddled with performance anxiety growing up. I was, was really quite quite good at a certain age group in, in soccer. And then performance anxiety just got the better of me. And I had no idea what it was and no idea how to handle it. But imagine you've come up against someone in the past and they've played well against you and you see them when you're lining out against that team. Because sometimes you used to think to yourself, Oh, maybe he's going to be injured this week or he's not going to show up or maybe whatever. And then you see him. So immediately the, the body goes into stress mode. It goes fight or flight. I need to get out of here. I can't, I can't perform. But you don't have the choice because you're, you're, you're showing up to play football. So then you get stripped out and the referee blows the whistle. You're still in the area where that threat exists. If you can't fight and you can't run away from it, your body goes, okay, what's the final thing that we can do? Uh, we're going to freeze. And you really, like, I can remember games where I couldn't hear anything. Like, it just, I was in a daze. I was completely numb. My limbs weren't my own. And I was running about, and I was following my man. I used to play center half, and my man would go out to pick up the ball, and I would half follow, but I had no idea where I was, what I was doing, because I'd gone into freeze mode. I was numb. And it was only maybe coming into the second half where I would kind of snap out of it and get into the rhythm of the game. And that would be when the stress would, the chemicals would leave my body. And I said, like, okay, now I can go and perform and do what I know that I can do. But that initial first half was dead for me. I used to be, the whole way through my under 15, under 16 seasons with, um, with Dungannon, I was sick before every game, every single game. I'd rush off the toilet, none of the lads would know, and I would physically be sick. And I was in that freeze mode for every first half that I played every game because I'd recognize the pressure of the game when you're 15, 16, that's when the scouts are there, you know, you've such and such might be there. I might've found out the night before because my manager might've phoned my dad and said, look, maybe Spurs are coming or whoever's coming. And so that first half, I didn't want to know. And that just destroyed everything. But there are ways around it. You know, there, 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 there are loads of different techniques that you can do in order to save yourself from that fight or flight. And that's, that's, where teams need to invest now in Gaelic there's a lot of investment starting to pop up you know teams are getting on board sports psychologists things like that because they understand the benefit of of mindset within within football within Gaelic football but I know 
from, from talking to you previously and from my own experience in the world of soccer, in Irish League, I don't really know anyone who's, who's, who's putting anything together. I have friends who play for Dungannon Swifts or for Glenavon or whatever. People I've been in contact from time to time and I'm saying, is anyone in your team doing anything? No. Is anyone talking about it? No. Yeah, that's it's an undersold element of the game in many ways and I, I guess I spoke to you as well previously about coach education and where the psychological element is almost kind of packaged together at the end just to tick a box and there's no real kind of um, effort put into to using it as a tool in which to develop the coaches and that from coming from a sort of sports psychology background with my degree and my interest in sports psychology, that is disappointing in many ways because you're left to your own devices to go and kind of meander through the field of psychology to try and find out what you think is right. Um, in many ways, when I've done that and I've put stuff up on Twitter or Facebook, there, there are people out there, the coaches out there actually go, hold on a minute, what is that? We've never heard of that. But like the perfect example is Growth and Fixed Mindsets by Carl Dweck. I mean, I came across that by absolute accident, it was actually an ex-partner of mine who had read it in a book and had mentioned to me because obviously I was coaching football at the time and I get into her work, done a bit of research, read her book, read some of her research papers and thought, why don't more people in sport know about this kind of work? Is it because they're scared to go on this path because they don't really understand themselves or what is it? Like, let's, let's take the word meditation. Until about three years ago, I would have told you no chance. There's no chance that I'm doing anything anywhere near the likes of meditation. That sounds like tree hugging stuff, you know? Um, I would have been anti anything that sounded like uh, spirituality, spiritualism. And so meditation, I tied in with all that and I thought, no way. Now, meditation would probably be the first thing that I advise to anyone because I now have... I kind of needed science to back me up and everything. And I now have a, a scientific definition of what meditation does for you. Meditation, it puts you back into homeostasis, which is your, 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 your basic functioning body without stress. And what that does is that rebuilds cells, uh, cell rejuvenation, cell regrowth. Hugely important things for anyone looking to do anything, whether it be in the sporting world and business world, it helps your body repair and heal and regrow. So that can be physically with, with regards to muscles and stuff, emotionally, mentally. Meditation is super important. The simple act of sitting down, following your breath in and out a minute a day until a couple of weeks time and you can pump it up to two, three, four. You don't have to do hours of meditation it's just simply okay i'm going to sit down i'm going to breathe in and i'm going to breathe out anytime a thought comes into my head as soon as i'm aware that i'm thinking again just go back to breathing again because it's all about not thinking because thoughts create chemical reactions in your body like physiologically our body changes from second to second with regards to every thought that we have if i have a thought right now that someone's behind me and going to shoot me now that's a really extreme example i know but immediately my body will go oh, oh, and it'll put me into that fight or flight but that's just by a thought so if you can remove thought then you can remove stress that's what meditation is and it's a common misconception, isn't it? Because you said earlier on there about the spirituality side of it, and you think it's kind of like tree hugging and stuff. But in many ways, and in fairness, hypnotherapy can also be seen as that, right? A lot of people get the wrong impression. A lot of people get the 
the people who walk around to university halls and perform and, and turn people into chickens and make them have lose lottery tickets and lose their glasses. You know what I mean? The, the comedian hypnotherapy. A lot yeah, of people have so that perception. Stage hypnotherapy. The amount of people that I have contacted me, whether it be on my Instagram or, or Facebook, who are completely interested in not just in, in improving their performance, but in, in working through the issues that they have in life. And then they go, but I'm really afraid of hypnotherapy. I don't want to, you're doing anything to me. And that's the thing. And this is something that, that maybe I should be more aware of and I don't promote or advertise enough is what actually hypnotherapy is. So hypnotherapy is basically a visualization in order to relax your nervous system. So when I say visualization, I would get you to have your eyes, your eyes would be closed and I'd get you to imagine that you're walking down a set of steps. Now there are other techniques around that. It's not simply that, but in, it's in a way that I'm just going to get you deeper and deeper and I'm going to be repeating the words deeper and deeper so that your body's nervous system switches off because your analytical mind is attached to your nervous system. When your analytical mind is alert, then you're going to analyze information and choose what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe. But if you can relax the analytical mind by relaxing the nervous system, then you're going to accept suggestions. So if your difficulty is public speaking, if you're in a state where you're no longer analyzing information, I'll tell you that you're very good at public speaking. I'll get you to visualize yourself speaking in public and your mind is going to accept that because it's no longer analyzing. That's what hypnotherapy is. But we made it popular with... Um, what was his name that I saw one time in Bundoran? Uh, I can't remember. Paul McKenna. Like Paul McKenna and that kind of thing where someone was using someone's foot as a mobile phone and it's like, oh, is that what hypnotherapy? But it's not that. That's a form of hypnotherapy. That's stage hypnotherapy. But um, it's simply accepting information, but not information like, look, such and such is a chicken. It's you can do that thing that you struggle to do. And um, because you're not analyzing information anymore, your mind just goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Because what I do in my session is I would hypnotize someone and then I would give them a few suggestions like, and these, these things have been done by lots of people. You can find it anywhere on the internet, actually, of holding a bucket and a balloon. So I would say to you, okay, guys, so you're holding in your left hand a heavy bucket and then you can see this arm moving down because they're accepting that suggestion. And in your right hand, you're holding a helium-filled balloon and then this arm goes up and then that's when I go ah okay so now this person is ready to accept suggestions and before the session they will give me they'll have given me a list of what it is that they want to be able to do that they can't do and I just feed that back in because if they're able to accept that they're holding a bucket and their hand goes down and holding the balloon and their arm goes up then what's the difference in me saying now you're you're able to speak in public look I want you to see yourself talking in front of hundreds of people you can do that easily and they might go oh yeah I can do that easily now. And that's, that's what it is. It's like implanting, changing an old idea or changing an old belief. That's, that's how I describe it best. It's, it's about changing beliefs. Yeah, I remember we spoke briefly about um, David James a number of years back. Yeah. And he's running about his 18-yard box, jumping up and visualizing catching crosses. And the commentators and the press completely and utterly caned him for it. You know, this kind of guy is crazy. Who does he think he is? Just get on with what he has to get to get on with. But actually, if you go back and you research uh, why he done that, and he's spoken openly about it, was because he had issues. He had anxiety all throughout his career at dealing with crosses. It was the biggest 
the, the most part of his game where he thought, I can't do this. And it was suggested to him that he go and visualize, but don't do it away from where people can't see you. Do it in front of the arena in which you'll be performing in. And that's the reason why he'd done it at Wembley that time along the front of his 18-yard box. Fascinating. Yep. Like, visualize. The difference between, let's say, hypnotherapy and visualization is, I, I do visualization within hypnotherapy because hypnotherapy is just a tool in order to get really into that sweet spot. Because there's this thing called cognitive dissonance which is why I'm not a huge fan of people who talk about uh, sort of positive thinking because positive thinking can backfire if you already hold the belief that you can't do that thing. If you say to yourself, I can speak in front of people, I can speak in front of people, but actually in the background you're, you're really frightened about it, that's cognitive dissonance. Your mind can't hold two contrasting beliefs at the same time and the subconscious will always defeat the conscious. So if the subconscious belief is I can't speak in front of people, it's always going to defeat the conscious, I can't speak in front of people. So that's why positive thinking, yeah, of course, but in the end, it can be harmful because you could be saying to yourself, look, I've been trying for months to do this thing. It must be my fault because everyone else says that this work works, but it must be my fault. So sometimes I'm, I'm very, that's not the advice that I give out. Although I do, let's say if we're taking visualization by itself, that's what I recommend to anyone who, if they don't want to do hypnotherapy, I would still recommend visualize, 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 because your mind accepts information. If we were to, to do a little experiment today of, and I, I say this for a lot of people, closing your eyes and imagining that you're eating a lemon, what happens is that your mouth gets flooded with saliva. Like you really imagine those like, like zingy taste going around your mouth. Suddenly, all of a sudden, your, your, your mouth produces saliva because you've given your, your mind a command. There's a lemon, I'm eating it. And your mind's going, okay, there's a lemon, I'm eating it. But there is no lemon. So you can do the same with visualization, which is giving your mind a command. I'm fine in this environment. I'm actually really good at doing this thing. Um, if we look at soccer, let's say, look, um, I'm, I'm, I always find myself in that position on the edge of the box where I can strike, where I can give this pass. And the more you visualize it, the more you create that neuron connection, which means that that then becomes something that you have in your toolbox. Because anything that you can do or anything that you can believe already exists in your brain as a neuron connection. But if you visualize it, you make that connection, then that's more or less the same as actually physically doing it. You can do that thing. So I'm actually going to be doing a seminar. Not a sem I don't know what how to call it. I don't think it's a seminar, but uh, I'm going to do a Zoom, group Zoom call chat next week where i'm just going to explain visualization because a lot of the gaelic players have been put in they're restricted to and maybe it goes to the the, the soccer as well i hadn't looked at soccer but they can't train over january and so if they can't train over january it's like look this is a great time in order for you to delve into part of the sports performance that you weren't looking at already so i'll put on a, a zoom where i'm going to explain why and how to visualize what's the best way to visualize because simply just going oh yeah i see myself running the ball it's not really going to work you have to get all your senses involved it's the same as the lemon you have to really get that sense of the taste so you have to become really descriptive and then you have to really believe that you're doing it and then what your mind's going to do is going to go oh that must be happening then like there, there are so many experiments that they've done like harvard experiments and there's there's one really interesting one where um, they did an experiment with a piece of piano music and they had three test groups. So you had your group who played it physically, 
your group who mentally visualized themselves playing it and then your constant group who did nothing. The group who played it obviously learned how to play it and you could find that learned um, program within their brain through brain scans. You can see that it lights up every time they play it. The group who visualized it also created the same learned program in their brain from never playing it. And if you put them down in front of a piano, they were then able to play it. So it shows that visualization is the same, more or less the same as actually doing that thing. So David James was rubbish on the crosses, but he was ahead of his game. Yeah, for sure. And what I actually love about the idea you've just spoken about with the uh, the Zoom call and, and describing what visualization is, is, is that it goes in many ways against the grain of what people understand to be coaching, right? Because from a coach's perspective, me being on the sideline, I'm supposed to be on the pitch with cones, bibs and footballs. I'm not supposed to have those one-to-one chats with my players. I'm not supposed to have that arm around the shoulder and tell them everything's going to be okay. You know, there's, there's a perception around what performance coach, if you want to call it that, looks like. And that is physically on the pitch coaching. But the stuff you're doing in many ways, I believe, is just if not more valuable because if they're not in the right mental mindset and they don't understand the thoughts, feelings, and emotions they're going through, then me, when I get them on the pitch, when I'm trying to maybe change systems or do some tactics or some technical work and they're not focused, then what do I say as a coach? You're not focused. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing this? And then I might lose my cool because I don't quite understand what they're going through. There's, there's a weird thing that I'm, I'm sort of spotting more and more now and i've read it in some books and i think that's what's allowing me to spot it more and more but let's take for example and i'm always going to contrast it with soccer because my experience is that soccer is very much behind in in all this um a rugby coach and a soccer coach one sits hundreds of seats up with a little connection but doesn't really do much maybe ask for a substitute and doesn't dictate what's happening there and then and a soccer coach is expected to be on the touchline driving in instructions over and over again and if he's sitting the way a social does sometimes people go well, look he doesn't even look interested coaching is supposed to be done well away from the game and the game is just supposed to take place if you start to implement coaching you make people think consciously about what they're doing which is so much slower than subconsciously when we talk about flow state flow state is subconscious there's no conscious thought about what you're doing but if you're coaching all the time and trying to, to get players to do things and this and that and this kind of drill and whatnot, you're making them use their, their, their frontal lobe, their, their, their conscious mind, which slows everything down. you got to get your coaching done in the, on, the, on the training pitch. When it comes to game time, you call the decisions, but I wouldn't coach. Now, there's another thing. This is what I disagree with within Gaelic, for example. The warm-up in Gaelic before games is hardcore drills 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 if you go into a gaelic match which a lot of players do nervous those drills are doing absolutely nothing for you physiologically within your body i wrote an article in gaelic life about this a month or two months ago and i got some messages going no one's going to do that the best way if your body has stress hormone in it to get rid of that stress hormone is to dance to feel loose, to feel comfortable, because no one dances and feels rigid unless you're 15 year old dancing with a girl for the first time, you know, where you're like, I don't know how to dance. But allow people to be like that, you know, if you relax, let's, let's not call it dance, let's call it move, movement. 
if you moved and suddenly you can limber yourself up, which changes you physiologically, but also mentally. And you're, oh yeah, I'm okay actually. That's why McGregor does the, you know, McGregor does the McGregor walk. He's showing that he's loose. That's not done through through drills. That's done through movement, which puts him then in a free state to go in and perform, to execute. Because if you have stress in your body, it tightens your muscles. You imagine someone who, a darts player, I was watching darts the other night, and Gary Anderson was getting really uh, aggravated by um, Sulovic, is that what it's called? And he was missing his shots because he was suffering from a stress emotion, which is anger, frustration. His body was producing stress chemicals, which tighten your muscle for that fight or flight. And if you have a specific movement, and that's your specific movement that you know, when your muscles are tight, you're still trying to do that specific movement, but your aim is off because you've tightened the process. And that's the same in every other sport. If you normally, you're center half and you're jumping to head the ball, if you've got that stress in, you've less spring. So many things are affected by stress hormone in your body. If they would only move in their warm-up and limber up and get loose, not get fast, get loose, performance would skyrocket, in my opinion. Just like the famous Maradona um, yeah. of him dancing in the center circle. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wrote that article just a couple of weeks before Maradona died. And then afterwards, I was like, look, lads, life is life. Look, I'm, 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 he's doing it because he was limber and he was loose. Looseness is the best thing that you can be before any sport. You can be loose. Your body has no stress in it, which means that your reach is where it needs to be, your spring. But drills, rigid drills, and that, oh, if the drill breaks down, you get lambasted for it. You know, in those, maybe in the Gaelic, the fisting drills and stuff like that, it breaks down and oh, get away with that. Get away with anything that causes stress. You don't want to cause more stress before the match. Go away from it. You know, funny, funny you should say that. I was out in the States 2011, and that from 2010 actually, but this happened in 2011 when I witnessed it. It was a coach that I worked with, and he pretty much just said to the group of girls that he was coaching, I'm not warming you up today. You are warming yourself up today. You can do whatever you like. It is totally on you. And one of them asked, well, can we play music? And he was like, if you've got a speaker, you've got a, t- a phone, yeah, hook it up. You know, you work away. And they were playing this team from Boston, and uh, I don't think that group exists anymore. I think they went out of business recently, and they were well known for their professionalism and how they set up. You know, they all came dressed in Adidas gear, all, everything looked uniformed. You know, they just looked stereotypical, sort of German fashion in many ways. You know, everything was precise. They weren't German, they were from Boston, but you, you get what I'm, I'm saying. And their warm up was all laid out. They went and done all their, their stuff. And in the other side of the pitch, you look at the squad that, that I was with or that Rich was with and they're there with the music on they're kicking the ball about they're having a bit of fun a bit of laugh they, the, the team captain is taking control to an extent and is doing the odd sort of routine run around a cone and back and forward but it looked a lot more relaxed and the performance I mean I'm not saying that just because we're on this podcast the performance levels were far higher than what we had seen out of them before and I believe it was purely because they were they were relaxed in that moment and they were in control of what they were doing pre the game. Yeah, like I, just as you're speaking about this, I've had a flashback. Um, so with my Dungan United youth team, we used to go every year to the tournament in Preston, the Easter tournament. And we played Preston, were we under 15 or under 16? We played Preston. And anyway, uh, before the match, they were all doing their, their rigid drills for their warm up. 
and we were smacking a ball at our left back that we told to stand in nets and we were just smacking it as hard as we could because our manager hadn't come with us on that trip. We were being managed by one of the lads' dads and as great a man as he was, he didn't, he sort of left us to our own devices for the warm-up and we were just laughing and joking and smacking the ball as hard as we can at our left back. I remember it to this day, we beat them 3-1 easily. And we were just, like that's, that's Preston on the 15s, the lads who have all signed contracts and are supposed to have futures, you know, bright futures in the sport. So technically they should have, they should have beaten a bunch of lads, you know, from Dungannon and, and in and around who half play soccer, half play Gaelic and, you know, have no sort of future in soccer. We, we destroyed them because we were so loose. It brings back memories of, of England in the last, was it the World Cup? Whenever there was pictures of Lingard and John Stones and Harry Maguire racing in the pool and the big massive blow up Lilo things. Yeah. You know, it looked absolutely absurd from the outside, but I'm pretty sure that the coaching team had a, had a reason behind why they were allowing them to do that. And that was essentially possibly to loosen up and to release stress and have fun and forget about the craziness that was going on outside. Definitely, definitely. I think anywhere where um, performance and achievement is important, a real sort of strict attitude comes in towards preparation. And that really takes away from performance. But on the other hand, I think in, in American football is quite a good example of, of um, how to obtain performance because there's a lot of money in American football there are lots of hypnotherapists who work in American football. There are lots of uh, sports psychologists. The, the, the players are visualizing over and over and over again what it is that they have to do, and they dance. If you see a change room in an American football, like before and after game, and even for celebrations, everything is to do with dancing. They're limber, and they're loose, and they're ready to go. And then when they get into that position, they've all already visualized it 100 times. They're aggressive. You know, aggression isn't in your warm-up. It's in your that moment where the aggression is supposed to be in your warm up. Smooth, be smooth, be loose, be be you know liberated. It's it's kind of the conversation's kind of went full circle, hasn't it? Really, from what we spoke about at the very start in terms of um, controlling those emotions to now thinking about well how we can actually be a bit more relaxed so that we can have more. I don't know what the chemicals called more better of those chemicals running around the, the body well, that yeah, make you feel good. You're in, your endorphins. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. Um, so again, this is a topic and an area of sport performance that I could speak about and listen to people speak about for a long, long time. And I'm conscious that we're now, what, about 45, 50 minutes into the podcast. So just for, as we sort of tail end the podcast, if somebody was, was out there and was, was having these thoughts, it might be an amateur, it could be an Irish league player, could even be a coach or a lay person at their work, and they're struggling to deal with their emotions on a day-to-day basis, whether it be stress, anger, frustration. Is there anything, maybe small changes they can make and do to help them along the way towards a path of not recovery, but a path of understanding and helping them get through that? Yeah, so at the minute, I'm working on a, on a program. It's, it's basically a self-actualization program um, that I'm going to be opening to the public in a couple of weeks, actually. But one of the, 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 the areas that we're going to work on is emotional life. So I, I split it into two. First one is to recognize the emotions that pop up. You don't have an emotion for no reason. You have an emotion because it's trying to tell you something. So anytime you feel something, 
feel it. Allow yourself to feel it because a lot of people push feelings away by this is where addiction comes in. Addiction comes from from not looking to feel something. It's it's moving away from pain towards pleasure. Allow yourself to feel it. What do I mean by that? I mean take a pen, a piece of paper, and write it down. I'm really angry right now because such and such said this to me and such and just get it down. First of all, get it out of your head. And you'll be able to actually see what it is that the thing is bothering you is, right? So then you can take the steps that you need in order to change that. That could be, look, I actually need to have a conversation with this person or I need to not have a conversation with this person. You'll, you'll see what it is. But the second thing that I'd advise anyone who's struggling with their emotions to do is write a list of the emotions that you would like to feel more of on a daily basis. Then write a recipe with regards how to feel those things. So let's say you might say to yourself, I want to feel light today. I want to feel that light emotion. Well, what in your past has given you that emotion? How have you felt that previously? That's your recipe to that emotion. And then take the time each day to do the activities that make you feel like that. That's the best place for anyone who wants to change what it is that they're currently living. The first place to look is your emotions, right? So if I want to feel happiness more often, and then I say, well, what is it that makes me feel happy? Well, for me personally, my nephews and nieces, because I lived, I lived in France for, I lived away from Ireland for 15 years. My nephews and nieces, the oldest are 10. I lived in France 10 years. I missed lots of their life, but now I'm back in Ireland. I love spending time with them. So they are part of my recipe to happiness. So what I'll do is, I make sure that I can spend some time every few days with my nephews and nieces. So I'm feeling happy. Like I'm consciously doing the things that make me feel how I want to feel. People like, oh, I want to feel like this. I want to feel like that. It's, you have to consciously go out after the feeling. It just doesn't come by itself. It's not something that's floating around and you step into. Um, I want to feel peace. Well, what makes me feel peaceful? Well, for me, it's reading. I like to sit in the corner and read. Okay. So I'm going to implement 30 minutes a day for reading. So therefore, I have 30 minutes apiece. And the more of those emotions that I want to feel, that I feel during the day, the better I feel. It's not complicated. Now, it's difficult in the beginning to get up and start to do that. But those are two things that people can do. They can write down what it is that they're feeling. And then the second one is they can chase the emotions that they want to feel. Awesome. Thank you, Gareth. Um, I know there'll be pl plenty of people out there who have maybe struggled through lockdowns and maybe because of the extra added pressure of working from home as well, that that might bring a lot of people have the perception that working from home might be this kind of like, you know, perfect mixture where you don't have to get up and go out of the house. But in actual fact, from what I hear from, from people who I know who work from home, it actually adds a hell of a lot more stress and anxiety onto their day than yeah. anything else. So. To those people, like this is something that I've had to implement myself because I felt it creeping up on me. Um, implement a five-minute walk every, let's say, hour. Now, don't because people think, oh, I'll, I'll walk today during work, and then they give themselves too much of a walk to do, and so they turn away from it because they go, well, I don't have that time. If you can get up and away from your workstation and do a lap of your house or something like that, or even walk in your house, just do that. Step away from where your stressor is, five minutes, two minutes, whatever it is, but get up and walk away. I, I set an alarm. I work in segments of 25. I work for 25 minutes. Then my alarm goes, beep, beep, beep. I lift my phone, 
I walk, and then my alarm goes again after five minutes. That's my five-minute break. Boop, boop, boop. And then I go back to my desk, work for another 25 minutes. So I do five minutes. But this isn't something I did from the beginning. It's something that I implemented because I was starting to feel that, ooh, I'm, I'm here too long. And, and actually, my productivity dipped the longer I stayed at work. I was, I'm, I'm so much better the less time I stay at work because I concentrate on that work. And I think a lot of people can can relate to that. And it's a, it's a nice way to kind of bring the, the podcast to a close. All of the information that anyone needs to get in contact with you, you know, I'll get off you and put it in the show notes for Spotify yeah. as well. And and they can they can hit them up. And obviously, as we publicize the podcast and we get it out there, all of your details will be on there. So I suppose the last thing for me to do is, is to thank you for giving your time up. I know you're in Cork right now, so it's you're not yeah. actually up, up north with us up here. But um, And I, I appreciate you doing that. And I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Yes, Gary, absolutely brilliant. Look, and if ever needed, let's do it again because that's we've, we've barely touched on things there. It goes a lot deeper, so uh, we'll go again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. To be able to delve a little bit deeper into understanding emotions, where they come from and how they're controlled, I think is absolutely fascinating. And it's something that we touched upon a number of years back with uh, some of the work that we've done with James Green and TriStar Boys. I think we took an 07, potentially it was an 06 group, and we looked at trying to get them to understand what their emotions look like and what they feel like. So we asked them to describe, you know, what anger feels like, what it looks like, what frustration feels like, um, what it what it looks like to try and get them to understand the emotion, but then also to give them little ideas in which they can use to potentially bat off some of that negative feeling or some of that negative emotion but also to understand where it comes from so i think it's a fascinating area of psychology and understanding it i think will can potentially help not just youth players but adults alike to potentially live a less stressful life and uh, have a bit more understanding basically of how their thoughts and emotions are formed and that's i guess what i loved so much about this episode in particular was how garth was able to make those experiences relatable I mean, there was no jargon. It was just real life examples of how to apply some of the techniques that he teaches. So keep an ear and an eye out on season three as I look to chat further with Gareth uh, with the potential of doing a second episode. So once again, thank you for listening. I'm going to give you that ever present gentle nudge towards some of our social media pages in the hope that you can comment, share and retweet to help us spread our reach so that others may feel inspired to share their story.